Namaste. My name is Callie Klug and I am a yoga teacher and Reiki practitioner in Orange County and I am very passionate about healing. This is the Your Own Medicine podcast, so welcome. Here we explore the countless modalities to healing through authentic chats and honest interactions. So let's discover how to be your own medicine. This week's episode um, was very interesting um, coming up to filming or recording the episode and then post uh, post recording and the editing. It was just kind of interesting from start to finish. <clears throat> so just a little bit of background. Um, Lizette is an amazing death doula. She is a grief coach. She's a yoga teacher and an author. And I met her at the Mammoth Yoga Festival because I was there um, partaking in her workshop that she facil- facilitated with Linda Sparrow on death and grief in, in the yoga world. So it was a really amazing workshop. It really gave me a lot to think about. I mean, it's heavy. It was four hours long. Um, and then coming up to filming the podcast, the day of the podcast recording, both me and Lizette realized that the podcast is premiering or will premiere um, on November 2nd, which is Day of the Dead. And the idea of this <clears throat> day, which is really based in Latin American tradition, is that the veil between the living and the dead becomes very thin. So we have more opportunity to connect with those um, loved ones that we have that have already transitioned into the afterlife. So it's a really beautiful, sacred time of the year um, in reverence to death. So it's really incredible that this episode completely not planned is published on this day. Also the day of recording, I pulled a card from my affirmation deck and I got the card of grief, (laughs) which is crazy because there's more than 70 cards in that deck. I've never pulled the grief card before. And so the fact that I pulled that on about just hours before talking to Lizette was really incredible and beautiful and divine. So I start this episode off with a reading of what the book talks about. For that card, for the grief card. Um, so that's what this episode begins with. And then just so you know, in post-editing, oh, there was a lot of audio issues. Um, during the recording, my Zoom crashed and then spontaneously <laughs> came back on. So I wasn't sure if we had lost the recording. Afterwards, I realized we didn't lose the recording, but all of the audio for um, recorded for me came out really choppy. So I ended up having to re-record all of that. So I'm just really grateful that the recording didn't completely delete. So if there's any choppiness in this episode, I apologize. I really did my best to edit out all the little (laughs) blips and make it as smooth as possible. 
Uh, regardless, the content in this episode is amazing. Lizette is so wise and so wonderful. And if you are going through any kind of grief or <clears throat> experiencing someone who's dying, or if that is you yourself, um, I really encourage you to first of all enjoy the episode. Lizette gives so much knowledge, and then also reach out to Lizette. She has so many resources for these kinds of things and also does grief coaching and and more. So with all that said, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. To easily integrate daily wellness, yoga, meditation, and breathwork into your routine, Check out my Yoga Island virtual yoga studio and community online. I have more than 60 recorded videos of yoga and meditation content on there. The goal is to make it really easy and doable for you to weave these ancient and effective and powerful practices into your daily routine to effectively change how you feel about yourself, your life, make you feel more empowered, more at peace in your physical body. So check it out. It's only $5.50 a month. Give it a try. Namaste. Grief. I understand that losing something is an opportunity to appreciate it. Nothing is gone forever. The belief that we have lost something or someone is merely an illusion to assist us in learning to appreciate our having it in the first place. The emotion of grief and the sense of loss are absolutely real, but that is the point. The lesson of loss is not about the actual physical separation, because the parting is temporary and illusory. The point of the lesson is to acknowledge that the bonds of love never end and that we have not been abandoned. When you accept in your heart that you will be reunited with everything you have ever loved, it will give you the ability to move beyond your grief and derive something beneficial from the experience. To wallow in grief is to pass up the opportunity that you and your soul family have devised and learn nothing from it. Instead, allow your grief to take you to a place of deeper understanding. So with that, welcome Lizette. I'm so pumped you're here. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. So my name is Lizette Tresen. I am a death doula and a yoga instructor and a grief coach. I live in upstate New York, about an hour outside of New York City, Beacon, New York, and Hudson Valley. Not quite upstate. People that live up in Albany would be frustrated with me saying that. Um, but I live in Hudson Valley, New York. I, like I said, I'm a death doula, but I really had my roots in yoga instruction and mindfulness teaching. And um, I'm sort of in the midst of really shifting, uh, using those contemplative tools and exploring those contemplative tools for end-of-life care and also bereavement care. That's so cool. So um, why do you think, I'm just literally jumping right into it right here, but why do you think death is something that even needs to be talked about? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, I mean, this is really, uh, yeah, this is really, I think, like, my big raisin Nesla, right? So, um, I failed to mention, I'm also a writer and an author, and I think that, 
you know, having had a lot of those sort of experiences, interviewing people, speaking with people, you sort of get a little bit into the psychology of understanding people, right? I'm sure that you've also experienced that being a yoga instructor. And I think that when we think about life and we think about all of the breadth of the tools that we use to understand and to explore life, particularly in the mindfulness and wellness space, ignore this big, great thing that happens to us at the end of life, right? We never really think about death as a part of life. We think about it as a final chapter, as something that we tend to sort of hide behind curtains and under fluorescent lights, and we really just sort of push it aside. And I truly believe that the integration of death into the life not only allows us to face our fear and our anxieties around death, but also to help us live better and love better. I think that particularly um, coming from this yoga background and coming from a, a background of writing and really spending my life investigating people, that death is this like kind of final frontier in exploration when you think about um contemplation and true wellness and that the way that we can begin to appreciate and approach death is by learning how to talk about it and by learning how to really again integrate that into our everyday lives. So I was really drawn to this work because, you know, I experienced some significant loss. I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute, but you know, I was drawn to this work because I realized in that experience of that significant loss, that it is this area that we just don't talk about and no one knows how to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it is this final frontier and it's kind of terrifying. And I think the fact that we don't talk about it, it makes as these like extra layers of discomfort and disease around death and the experience of death and whether it's us or someone we know. So yeah, I think it's really cool that you have this solid reasoning behind bringing death into a dialogue and a conversation. Not to like dive right into all of the psychology behind it, but <laughs> there's this 1973 book, um, written by Ernest Becker. And in it, Ernest Becker was a psychologist working throughout the 60s, um, or really throughout the mid 20th century. And he wrote this book in 1973 called The Denial of Death. And in it, he posited that the denial of death, our insistence that mortality isn't real, our sort of shoving it away, really is what fuels everything that we do in our lives. And I thought that was fascinating, right? Because I think the for the first half of the 20th century, Freudian psychology was really the sort of main foundational aspect of psychology and everything we do is driven by sex, right? And then Becker comes along in, in the 70s and is like, no, 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 everything we actually do is driven by this denial of death or our inability to accept it. In um, So there were these three graduate students who were students at Becker's throughout the 70s and 80s. And in 2014, they spent years and years researching this. I don't remember their names off the top of my head. Please forgive me, but there are three of them. In 2014, they published a book uh, called The Worm at the Core. And in it, they posited terror management theory. And terror management theory is this idea that it's not just the denial of death that fuels what we do and how we create legacy and how we structure society, but our, our fear of mortality. And it's that fear that really drives us through life. So I think when you think about this broad, like, you know, this breadth of research and this breadth of, of understanding, this isn't like a new concept, this idea that talking about death will help us appreciate it. So I in no way want to, you know, give claim to that at all. But I think that, um, but that 
you know, we, we can see with this breadth of research how important it really is for us to integrate death. And so given all of this and like knowing that we have all of this knowledge and that it's something that every single one of us will experience, not just for ourselves, but every single one of us will experience a significant death in our life. And I know that we'll get to like big D, little D a little bit later, but, but this, you know, it's something that really is a universally felt and a universally experienced phenomenon. So why, why don't we talk about it? Why do we continue to sort of hide it and shy away from it? And what has happened in our society and in our culture that has allowed us to be so separated from it? And I think that, you know, we, the death doula movement, right? I think sometimes people are like, what the heck is a death doula, right? Like, how do we, like, I've heard of a birth doula, but like, what does that even mean? And I think foundationally, the reason that these sort of alternative death care ways are coming up and methods are coming up is because we are beginning to sort of swing the pendulum back to a time and a place when death was a part of our society. It was more a part of our society, right? At the beginning of the 20th century, think about it, the Victorians would have these death parlors and they would lay their dead out and people would come in and they would, you know, mourn more very openly, right? People would wear black for days on end, right? Um, I think it was expected that a mourning spouse would wear black for like a month, right? What do we get now? Like three days off work for familial leave or bereavement leave? You know, it's insane. The idea that the death industry has become an industry and is really sort of, I think, aided in this separation of our experience of death because it has become a commercialized, again, industry rather than an experience. And in the same way that we um, can use the tools of mindfulness and the tools of ancient um, healing modalities and healing technologies, you know, the belonging to other cultures, not our own, let's just be very clear about that, right? But acupuncture, traditional medicine, these kinds of things, you know, we're seeing that pendulum swift, a, a pendulum swing of people wanting again to return to the roots of something that is so meaningful and is so important um, in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, you have so much knowledge about it. And I don't even know um, where to sp- start, but when you speak on how it's become so commercial, I was at a funeral about a month or so ago, and I was really shocked at how it was half in a church, half at the cemetery, and both of those felt like, you know, they were talking about exchanging money. Uh, we got to the cemetery late, and the guy who was checking us in was like, you know, he was, had his customer service voice, and because we were late, we got, like, five minutes at the actual gravestone, and it was just, like, whoa, like, this, someone died, (laughs) like, someone died, like, you can't get any more serious than someone has literally died, and it felt so cold and removed of any humanness, uh, basically, and it was, it was really shocking, actually, so I think, like you're saying, this integration of, I don't even know what the word would be, but just this integration of emotion and the process and the transition like you said what other cultures have 
already practiced and it's so important to start bringing that back. Absolutely. So word, the idea, the, the word undertaker, right, actually comes from back in the 20th century, back in the beginning of the 20th century, and really largely through World War II, funerals were mostly held at people's homes. Weeks were held at people's homes. And people, for the fortunate among us, right, Mandonic people, people were largely buried on family property. Communal cemeteries didn't really become a thing until after the sort of explosion um, of population through the AD boom and all of that in the 1940s. And they went from sort of being really small community cemeteries into these sort of large industrialized cemeteries, right? In the 1950s, I think it's something like, seriously, it's something like 50% of the caskets that were made in the United States uh, were made of wood draped in cloth or other biodegradable material. And by the 1990s, 60% of the caskets that were made were made of metal. And like 80% of the caskets that are made today are made by two companies across the nation. So we see this consolidation in the funeral industry and in the uh, in the death industry, the same way that we're seeing it in a lot of other industries across across the board, right? Now, I think, you know, that's not to say that there are really incredible people doing really incredible work uh, to sort of, again, initiate that pendulum swift, that pendulum swing. So there's an organization called the National Gold Funerals Alliance that was actually started in part, she had a hand in the creation of it with my mentor, Sandy McGregor. She runs the Sophia Center for Life Studies down in Nashville, North Carolina. It's a really incredible program. But uh, the National Home Funerals Alliance uh, works to advocate for, you know, more natural burials or having sort of services and death rituals in someone's home. And then there's, I'm sure you've heard of green burials really becoming a bigger thing. One of my best friends is a funeral director in Austin, Texas, for one of the only two uh, natural burial places in the state of Texas. Her name is Campbell Ringle. She runs a place called Eloise Woods. and you know, it, we really are beginning to see, and she's been incredibly busy this year, obviously with COVID, but, you know, the the desire for this return is really, truly, is really, truly there. And so I think that we are in a really interesting moment when, and I think COVID has also opened a gateway for us to want to talk about death and to need to talk about death and collective grief in a way that we probably haven't experienced since maybe World War II as a as a as a nation, right? As a as a national conversation. So yeah, I think, you know, there is this coldness. I'm sorry, first of all, for your loss and that you experienced that in that in that funeral, because I think that that is something that people experience quite often when my, so one of the reasons that I got into this work to begin with in 2018, uh, after a relatively short struggle with addiction, well, uh, we just, it, she kept it secret for a long time. My mom passed away in 2018 and she really was a very private person and she really didn't want a big hullabaloo, right? She didn't want this traditional, well, it's funny, right? We used the word that, that, that the death doula route, the natural funeral alliance, the Greek burials, all of these things are like non-traditional, right? But in fact, 
they are the most traditional. <laughs> so I think it's not this sort of, again, the pendulum swing, but she really wanted uh, a non, let's say, industrialized funeral experience. So we, you know, we had a little home ritual for her and I hope she was cremated and her ashes were put into a Himalayan dissolving salt urn and my dad and my sister and I half of her ashes went into the ocean in North Carolina where she lived and the other half went into a river in northern Indiana in the town that she grew up Uh, my family was her family was really insistent that we have a traditional service as well somewhat against my mom's wishes and we went ahead and did that and I have to tell you you know while the service at the church where my mother was baptized and my grandparents were married and the whole, you know, forever and ever back, the service was fine, right? It was, it was lovely. And I'm sure that it was really meaningful for her family that wasn't there with us for the more atypical ceremony that we had for her on our own. But I will never, ever forget this, this atypical ceremony that we had for her. I mean, we were laughing we were crying we were sharing stories we were like covered in snot and like you know white <laughs> and it was so powerful and I think that those are the kinds of moments that really allow us to begin to grieve and begin to process loss and to integrate our loss in a way that perhaps these more commercialized industrial ways of mourning and ways of of grieving don't necessarily allow us um, to take root. And I think that's one reason why we find ourselves in this position as a community, as a society, as a nation, that we are so separated, right? Because we just are not connected in any way, shape, or form to that snotty, messy, cry, laugh kind of thing. Everything is very like, you know, now we go to the grave site. Now we and I, I, I hesitate to say all of this. I would just like to give the disclaimer that if that is what works for people, that's amazing. That's wonderful. That's incredible. That's, you know, just like we say with mindfulness tools, just like we say when we're teaching yoga, it's really your practice. And grieving and death is really your practice. But I think that um, these alternative routes to approaching death and grief Um, are just alternative ways of beginning to explore what that could look like. And people might find more meaning and more significance and more healing in these these newer, new old (laughs) ways of processing. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said too on the somatic level when someone dies. I don't think, if if you have any connection to them, I don't think anyone's like, okay... Like, something in you wants to scream and cry and laugh and snot and rage and, you know, get it out. And so I think there's something to be said about having a ceremony or a space or some kind of facilitated whatever where you're able to get that shit out, you know? And that's a huge part of that healing process. I remember in my death class in San Diego, they were teaching us about in India when someone dies, how the genders are separated. So there's the men and the women and the women go into these rooms and they just wail. 
and the louder the better and they'll wail for days and apparently it's really good for their nervous system to scream and cry and it's kind of you know when you're in there I guess it's you're kind of obligated to be as loud as you can and um it's really healing apparently and so when you look at maybe the other end of the spectrum which you know it varies and you know the traditional American funeral but people are definitely in tears and crying there's weeping but very rarely do you hear someone wailing or like someone on the ground or something like that absolutely i think the first time i heard that kind of guttural wailing is i went to shiva at a friend a jewish friend his father had passed and um i actually hate that word passed he died if we should we should really try to normalize that and you can see even as like someone who really advocates for this it's hard to break out of those patterns right Anyway, the first time I really heard that wailing, his mother, we were at Shiva and she just, you know, lost it. And it was shocking to me having this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant background um, and, you know, just realizing how truly guttural death is and honestly kind of should be. I, um, I had, in 2012, I spent six months in India and my husband and husband now and I, uh, spent significant time in Varanasi, which is the most um, sacred city for Hindus to be um, buried or cremated. And um, we spent some time at the burning bath. And this is where they carry the bodies down and they, you know, light the bodies on fire and then whatever's left gets put into the Ganga. And, and the thing that struck me so deeply about that experience and being there was number one, that was only because I was a white woman that I was allowed to be at the burning guy, which is worth noting. Um, typically, Indian women are not allowed to witness this. But that, aside from that, just how blatantly real the whole thing was. I mean, there were just dead bodies being carried through the street at all hours of the day, right? And it was, there was no hiding from it. There was no... There was no embalming a body, put it into a metal casket, close the metal casket, put it into a hearse, you know, drive the hearse down the street. I mean, people were just lifting their their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers, both their heads and carrying them through the streets of Varanasi. And, you know, it it was so striking and it was so powerful. And I think it really had a huge impact on the way that I began to think about death and think about what death could look like. My first experience with death, my grandfather died, right? As, as happens for all of us when I was 15. And he died at home. He had Crohn's disease. He'd been in a hospital bed in the house for a really long time. And that week leading up to his, to his actual transition, I spent a lot of time, he was my, we were very close. And we spent a lot of time in bed. I just kept reciting Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee to him over and over. And you know, he, watching his body, like, really wither away. But on the night that he was about to actually die, my mom sort of, like, shoot us upstairs. My sister and I sort of shoot us upstairs and told us that we wouldn't want to be there for that. And I know that she was doing it, saying that to be protective. But I think about that a lot, how different that experience was for me to kind of not been there when my grandpa took his actual last breath to have not been a witness to that moment of transition and 
can juxtaposing that to the experience of perhaps in Varanasi, the children who see this death every single day, how does that allow us to better approach life or differently approach life? How does that allow us to, to understand the concepts of death and to appreciate our mortality rather than to sort of run from it? That's really cool that you were there. Uh, I remember too, in the death workshop, you were saying that in what country was it? Um, in Bhutan, where they meditate daily on their death? Yeah, there's this Buddhist practice called Maranasati, and it's a death meditation. So you like, you really visualize your own death. And it can get really, like some of them, I encourage all of your listeners to, there's a bunch of YouTube videos of nuns and monks giving these Maranasati meditations. And some of them are really intense you know, to really physically, we did something like that in the death workshop that was a little bit toned down just, <laughs> but, but some of them are really intense and it's, it's a way, you know, in Bhutan, they measure their gross national happiness and it's consistently rated. I'm not sure on what index they can actually determine this, but it's consistently rated one of the happiest countries in the world. People consider themselves very happy. And so what is that relationship? Of, more, of understanding and accepting mortality and general happiness or acceptance in life. In this book, The Worm at the Core, those three psychologists I mentioned that came up with this terror management theory did a whole bunch of studies. And it was wild that people who thought about their death were actually more able to approach a different task with more lightness or more appreciation, which you would think intuitively would be the opposite, right? And so, you know, I think it's it's just a, when you really get into it, it really flips the whole idea of being scared of death or the denial of death on its head, right? And so how can we use conversation, contemplative tools and integration to allow ourselves to move forward um, and make death more a part of our life? And I think that's really what this sort of new old, let's call it, death movement is really all about and why there is this increased interest in work like being a death doula or, you know, working in bereavement because people are hungry for that return. And as I think our traditional social structures, or let's say traditional, the, the latter half of the 20th century began to change and disintegrate, right? Our generation will not age or look the same way as our parents did because those structures are disintegrating for us. So what can we do? Why are we hungry for a different kind of approach? And I think that all of this, again, new old death movement is a huge part of that. Yeah. So speaking of, I want to get into like what a death doula is. What made you want to be a death doula? And I want to say too, I already told you this, but for anyone listening, this is the most questions I've ever gotten for this episode is this episode for you, Lizette. And then um, I think the amount of questions that I received for this episode just affirms your point that people are hungry for this conversation. It's something that has been stifled for a long time. And so I think, yeah, people are really hungry for it. Well, that makes me thank you. I hope that I can actually answer them, not let anyone stand on 
<laughs> okay, so number one is easy. What is a death doula and what made you want to become a death doula? What was that process like? Yeah, so, you know, um, I hesitate to pigeonhole the answer to, to what is a death doula, right? Because I think that people who are doing this work have lots of different interpretations in the way that you can do this work. So I think, first of all, let's just go ahead and make the comparison. A birth doula, just because we know what we are much more familiar with it, which I think is also a good side note, right? Again, we're looking for these alternative ways of care. 15, 10 years ago, we would not necessarily have known what a birth doula is. And that's changing so much now. But my sort of, you know, boilerplate definition of what a death doula is, is that a death doula is someone who empowers a dying person and their family uh, to find meaning and sacredness in death through companionship, mentor- mentorship, and non-medical assistance. So, you know, it's, there are lots of different ways that you can be a death doula. I primarily specialize in legacy work and in sort of creating meaning for families at the end of life and, and people at the end of life, sort of end of life review, storytelling, you know, just basic companionship. Other death doulas really specialize in creating vigils, end of life, the actual, for the moment of actual transition. And that could look like, you know, and that could look like setting the space. It could look like making plans to wash the body. Other death doulas, and I do some of this as well, will work with, again, like uh, funeral homes, hospice to really coordinate care and kind of just be like an intermediary between the the people working um, at the end of life. I volunteer with the Hudson Valley Hospice as a, as a doula. And a lot of that is just spent sitting with people and listening and offering conversation, companionship. And that's for the family as well as the dying person. I think one thing that we often forget about when we think about death is that typically there's one person who's the primary caretaker. And that primary caretaker's life is really you know, literally just taking care of that dying person. And I say just meaning not simply, meaning it kind of gets taken over by that. And you'd be surprised or probably not actually, but, you know, we we can forget how lonely that can be. And when someone is in the last stages of life, they're very often not leaving the house very often, not, you know, able to get out of bed maybe even, and so caretakers without someone who's able to just come kind of offer that relief may not have contact with other human beings for days on end, right? Or may not be able to go. I was working with a family weeks ago. um, The husband and wife were caretaking for his mother and she'd been living at their home and they'd been, you know, taking care of her and they hadn't been out of the house in like two months because they could leave her, right? So it's really important. And so a death doula, again, is someone who might just fill these gaps and sort of act as an advocate in the same way that a birth doula will act as a sort of advocate between your your medical care team and your family and kind of fills in some of those spiritual, and I don't necessarily mean religious, but maybe some of that too, spiritual gaps in care. So yeah, so I think a death doula is someone who 
sits down with the family and offers this non-medical assistance in a way that could be companionship, mentorship, and to help create meaning and sacredness around this really important transitional time. And what made you want to get into this kind of work? So again, right, my during my mom's death, I had no idea what I was doing, right? None of us did. My dad was your sole caretaker. They were in North Carolina. My sister and I would come down to kind of like relieve him now and then, but it was primarily him. He was fantastic throughout it. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what it felt like. And I realized after she died that I had really encouraged her to fight, to live, to to fight this battle, right? And that's truly one of my biggest regrets because I think that what she could have used more and what dying people could use more of at the end of life is a serious and contemplative conversation around death, right? How do you feel? What does it feel like? Are you frightened of anything? Is there anything that you want to resolve at the end of your life? Is there someone that you would like to make amends with? Is there one last thing you'd like to do? Is there a story you'd like to leave behind? What is your legacy? How can we help How can we help make, make sure that when you reach that moment of actual transition, that you are truly ready to let go, right? And I think part of what drew me to this work was, this, was the realization of those regrets. And also, um, <laughs> she was in the ICU in the hospital and uh, <laughs> we, we, we promised her that she would die at home. And she was on the, on the list for a liver transplant. She was number one in the United States. She had this like kind of miraculous day, right? They say it's like your last hurrah. And then we came back to the hospital the next morning and it was, it was over. And they had had to take her off the transplant list because she wouldn't have been strong enough to survive it. And that's how transplants work, which I totally respect and understand. But so the, the ICU doctor pulled us all into this room and my dad, my sister and I entered this room and was kind of like, yeah, today's the day. We're sorry. She's not going to live. So, you know, we can keep her alive for probably three months on machines and all of that, but you'll need to make the decision as to when pull the plug. They didn't use those words, but you know, and <laughs> so dad goes, well, we're doing it today. And the guy's like, what are you talking about? You know? And, and he's like, well, I promised her. And I, I promised her. So he's like, okay. He's like, well, the only thing is that she's not dying here. And the ICU doctor is like, well, I'm sorry, red teeth, blah, blah, blah. You you can't leave the hospital. And my dad's like, look, man, I don't care if I have to unplug her myself, throw over my shoulder and walk out of the hospital and she dies on the way out while I carry her out. At least she'll know we tried. And the doctor's like, whoa, okay. So (laughs) so at this like very crucial moment when, you know, these are the, like the last few hours for consciousness. We were running around the hospital trying to figure out how we were going to get her home. And in a moment like that, how amazing would it have been for there to be an advocate who wasn't necessarily a medically trained person who couldn't probably by Hippocratic oath do what we were trying to do, right? How awesome would it have been had there been an advocate there to help us with that? And that, again, is a gap in given the proper training and, and things like that, that a death doula could, could um, potentially be able to fill. So, yeah, I think, you know, 
the other thing is that, again, like I was saying before, this idea of being able to talk about the fears and to talk directly about death and to be able to comfort a person in letting them know that it's okay to let go and, and it's okay to be scared and it's okay. You're not losing a battle by dying. And that's language that we use all the time when we think about death, right? Like you lost the battle to cancer. No, 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 you died from cancer, right? Death isn't a battle that you lose. It's something that happens to all of us. And so understanding how to help somebody approach their own death in a way that allows them to leave peacefully and with acceptance and with gratitude for the life rather than surrounded in fear and anxiety around that last transitional moment, I think is crucial in helping someone, you know, face that transition in peace. In, in, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead and in Buddhist philosophy, you know, that's a huge part of helping a body move through the bardos. So in, in Tibetan philosophy, there are seven bardos that you go through uh, during your death. And it takes, I think it's like 49 days, they, they say. It's been a while since I've read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So forgive me if there's a few things wrong there, listeners. <laughs> but the, but the, I, the idea is that you recite this prayer, you recite these mantras, you help this person through the bardos. And never do you tell the person to come back, right? You're helping the person accept the dissolution of the physical body into the subtle body, into the very subtle body. And in Buddhist philosophy, it's that sort of release and allowance of acceptance that allows you to pass through into the next, into the next life. So whatever your beliefs are about the afterlife, you know, whether that means you enter the kingdom of heaven or you, you know, go to an island or you uh, are reborn allowing someone to approach this transition in a moment of peace, again, rather than in a moment of fear, I think is integral to full-hearted living. So interesting to what you say about the linguistics of it that creates that, that helps to facilitate this feeling of fear and rejection of death. Like you said, you know, losing the battle to death she lost the battle to cancer like you said you know we all die and I think I've never thought of it that way before and then kind of backtracking even further to what you said earlier um like oh he passed away uh you said I I don't want to say that he died that's what you said instead and and what why is that something to be aware of well, I think, and, and again, it's, it's up to the individual, right? What words you use and the, the, the linguistics that you choose, I think it's your choice, right? But again, why is death a dirty word, right? Why is he died? They're dying, right? Why is that so hard for us to say? I think that comes back to our fear of mortality and our, our denial of death and, you know, this idea that you know, the great struggle of, of being a human, right? We're the only species who acknowledges our mortality. <laughs> and it sucks, right? It's not easy. Like, let's be very frank about it. Um, and so we use these euphemisms as a way to kind of like pretend it's not happening, right? Oh, we passed, right? I like the word transition a lot because I think that it's not quite as harsh as, as the word death. But like you passed what? 
you passed the test. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just think that normalizing the language around death is also an integral part in beginning to understand it and beginning to allow ourselves to integrate it into life. And I do just so strongly believe that understanding death, accepting death is so important for our ability to live. When we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge death, how can we live? How can we find life? Right? You know that uh, there was this thing my mom had on the fridge growing up that was, uh, it's very 90s, aging myself there. It was early 90s. It's called like everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten, right? And the first thing on it was everything dies. Even the little seed in the styrofoam in the styrofoam cup dies. And I think that this is one of the earliest lessons that we learn in life. And as children, we might even be more accepting of the idea of death, right? And then as we grow up, we become more and more scared. We become more and more, we become layered with all of our insecurities and all of our fears and all of our desires and all of our unfulfilled desires and regrets and all of these things. Okay, so for you listening to this right now, I don't know what just happened. My Zoom just crashed and rebooted, so we're just starting with the next question. Okay. So, um, two people actually asked the same question. What kind of schooling and training is needed to be a death doula? So I did my um, training through ANELDA, the International End of Life Doula Association. There are a lot of different organizations that you can do your training through. And the length of the training and number of hours and all of that really depends. There isn't a single certifying body for a death doula. It's very similar to birth doulas in that way, but I highly recommend finding one that really resonates with you and sort of like doing the research to find something, um, again, that really resonates. You know, a lot of um, programs have gone virtual during COVID and I think that that's great, but I think there's something really powerful about being in person with people and, you know, so much of my training was really going deep into your own attitudes and opinions around death and how that might play out. And it was just, it was a profoundly emotional experience. So again, I did mine through Anelda, I-N-E-L-D-A.org. Going with Grace is another one. I have a, a handful of um, friends and colleagues who did their training through Going with Grace, and I've heard that the program is incredible. And then, yeah, there are lots of other things, but there's not really one specific thing you have to do or certify body. And then to work with hospice, I did a 20-hour training with hospice to work with them as well. Okay, very cool. Uh, and this was another question. <laughs> what kind of reactions do you get when you tell people that you're a death doula? Um, am I allowed to curse on this? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm not kidding. The primary um, singular reaction. <laughs> Actually, I've told so many people like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm having a death duel on the podcast. And they're like, what the hell is that? And I go, you know, a birth doula? No. Okay. Well, how do I explain this to you, right? Because I think, again, like, it sounds like such a weird thing to do right? Why would you do that? Why would you like put the word death in your job title? It's crazy, you know, like, but that's the whole point. 
So yeah, I think that's like the, that's the number one reaction <laughs> that people give. And then you start to explain it and I think people are really skeptical, right? Because we, again, tend to like liken into life care to uh, medical intervention and, and that being a sort of only route. And so I think it's, I hate to say this because it sounds really ageist and I really don't mean it to because it's not true across the board. One of my mentors, Linda Sparrow, who I did the workshop with at, at Manda is, you know, in her 70s and she's one of the most, you know, incredibly inspirational people I've ever met who who works in death. And so it's not true across the board, but I'd say majorly people uh, who are a little bit younger, maybe millennials below, have a little bit more open attitude to to that. Having said that, I think um, as our health insurance industry continues to wreak havoc on everybody's ability to seek the kind of care that they want, more and more people are becoming open to that. And as we are going to see a whole generation of people, the Gen Xers who don't necessarily have the same kinds of retirement plans, structures, end-of-life plans and cares that perhaps the baby boomers might have, we're going to see a lot more acceptance. That's my sort of gut feeling around that. And I, I'm going to say it here first, I'm going to bet money that in 10 years, uh, when people ask what I do and I say, oh, I'm deathly, oh, that's fascinating to tell me about that. It's going to be a lot less of what the fuck. At least I hope. <laughs> I think you're right. And I mean, you look at Gen Z now, they talk about death all the time, willy nilly, making memes, making jokes about it, like, oh, joking. Oh, I want to die. It's like, whoa. That's the fascinating part. Like, this idea of death acceptance is becoming so much more available. Like, we don't have to hide these conversations anymore. And I think even, again, that's what I was saying at the beginning, this idea of like our traditional structures failing us, it's falling apart. We have no choice but to think about these things. Like, you know, I, I pay for health insurance out of pocket. Like I'm sure a lot of your listeners do as well. And I, I don't work a job that has a traditional, I run a small content agency, right? Like I don't, I don't have health insurance through my employer. <laughs> and so and so this idea of traditional structures not being there for us has given us an opening to talk about things that we might not otherwise have been able to talk about previously in a really big profound way. So that shift is happening. Absolutely. But yeah, as of as of 2021, people are still quite <laughs> <laughs> Like you just reminded them that they're gonna die. So that's probably kind of not convenient as well, I think. Yeah. That's a yeah. And it's not the same as like, you know, people are like, oh, I'm a hospice nurse. Well, there's something really admirable, yeah. right? People really sort of like laud that and 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 that's and, and they should be lauded. Hospice nurses are saints incarnate, right? But I think that there are lots of ways that we can work in death and approach death. And again, those alternative ways of, of doing so are going to continue to be more and more available and more and more accepted. Mm, right. Another thing that someone asked is, what do you find is most comforting to people who are dying? We kind of touched on this, but what is most comforting for them as well for the family and friends of the dying person? So I think this is the really, and this opens up like a whole can of worms, I think. Really, and I'm sorry that this is a really not committal answer, but it really depends on the person, 
right? Some people are really going to want to talk about it. I just talked a big game about like wishing that I had asked my mom how she felt. We talked about death, like her attitude to death and all that. Some people are just really not going to want to do that, right? And that's okay. So some people might take great comfort in um, talking about it and some people might not. Some people may take great comfort in wanting to do legacy work and wanting to leave behind a story of their life for their family. Other people might find that really painful. People who might not have had um, the kind of social support or familial support in their lives might not want to, to do a life review at the end of their life. And that's really sad, but it's, it's true, right? And I think that one of the things about working in death is that you need to be very, very aware of the fact that not everyone has had a life that they are not wanting to leave, right? And that's really important to bear in mind. As far as like comforting family, so again, I think what's most comforting to people who are dying really depends on that person. And part of being a death doula and part of working in this more spiritual, non-medical side of death and bereavement is so much listening to individual people and spending time with them and getting to know them, right? We all have an, an boundless capacity for empathy and compassion and understanding given that we give ourselves the time and the active listening to, to be there to do it. I really, I really believe that. I don't, I don't think that empathy is something that we, um, that we have to earn, right? I think we all have about this capacity for empathy, compassion, and understanding. And so much of this more like non-medical spiritual side of this work is to sit down and hone in on what that person isn't saying sometimes to know what it is that they need. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And then I think the, the most comforting thing for like family and friends, just this is just my personal experience, is uh, storytelling. One of the things I think that people, I mean, how many times, right, have you been in a situation and this is me too, right? Like absolutely me too. When someone loses someone in their life, like a friend loses someone, a family member loses someone, and you just like don't know what to say, right? You, you don't know what to say. It's like, I'm sorry. You probably don't want to talk about it, right? I have found the absolute opposite to be true. And that when someone experiences death, when someone experiences loss, they want to talk about it, right? They just don't necessarily want to take up the space because people are uncomfortable when we talk about death. So, so much of the work that I really want like to continue to advocate for is creating containers and spaces where it's comfortable to talk about death and to talk about loss and to talk about grief and to tell that story. Like, <laughs> my friends will tell you, like, I could tell the story of my mom's death to anyone who will listen. And every time I tell it, it helps it heal a little bit more, right? But so often people do not want to hear it. They don't want to hold space for it. They'll change the subject they'll, because it's really uncomfortable. And so, yeah, I think the most comforting for family and friends is to ask them, like, tell them all about it and then shut up and listen. Don't make the story about you. Don't add in your own experiences of someone else that you know that died. Or, you know, I think sometimes we're so ready to like, oh, I know what you feel. I, I've, I've been there too. I want to I share that. And that's good. That's a human 
that that's a form of empathy, that's a form of compassion, and that's beautiful. But I think when we're dealing with helping people through loss and through bereavement and through, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary, profound grief, the last thing anyone wants to hear is that you know how they feel, right? So hold the space and listen and ask the questions. And when they're done talking, ask for more questions. And then, you know, if it's someone's spouse who's died, like, you know, ask the really weird questions. What did they smell like? What was their favorite shirt, right? Get them talking about them in a way um, that gives them an opportunity for what's called restorative storytelling. And restorative storytelling is another tool that doulas and bereavement workers will, will use to, to allow people that space to own the story so that it doesn't become something that happened to them, but that they participated in. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think you said something about that too at the workshop. Like it makes you a player. Like it makes you an active participant instead of just a passive recipient of that experience. Right, because death isn't death doesn't just happen to dying. <laughs> and so not only are you a death doula, but you're also a grief coach. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you explain maybe the difference between grief couch or grief coaching, counseling, and grief coaching and death doulaing? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of intersection between death doulaing and grief coaching. Um, one of my hospice clients, I think it's a really blurry line. I spent a lot of time with the dying person's wife. And I would say... There have been several conversations we've had that are like, oh, I just became a grief coach there first, right? Because there's anticipatory grief, right? That is pre-death and that can be just as uh, profoundly disturbing as the grief upon death. Sometimes people actually feel relief upon death and that can be like a whole spiral of shame and all of these things. Um, so, sorry, I'm like, over talking myself here, but I think that the major difference between a grief coach and a grief counselor or a grief therapist, right? Therapists and counselors really help you unpack um, your past and sort of what happened and how, how it affected you and how it made you who you are. Your grief coaches really allow you to figure out a plan to move through your grief and go forward. I try not to work with people for more than like four sessions, right? Because you really, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed social worker. I'm not a counselor. And while I understand complicated grief, um, I don't have necessarily the schooling or the tools to help people through that. And so I will refer people to counselors or therapists upon need of that. So yeah, it's really about figuring out a way to move forward with your grief, right? Maybe that looks like help cleaning up closets. Maybe that looks like, you know, figuring out a new routine for your day. Maybe that looks like just sitting and holding space again to talk about it, right? And to sort of break some of the patterns, programs that happen to us, particularly for primary caretakers, when we're going through a loss and we're going through um, a death. You know, I think we pack a lot of crap. Um, to ourselves in these deep, profound experiences. And a grief coach can kind of help you like lift that hurt a little bit. Right. 
That's very cool. And did you become a grief coach at the same time you became a death doula? Um, I just did my grief coaching certification this year. And so it was after, but I just realized things that like, you know, death is a full spectrum experience, man. <laughs> you know, it's in the moment you get terminally ill until months after you passed that transition, whatever, <laughs> right? And so, and the experience of death again, isn't just for the person who's dying. So I think it's important to sort of be able to have those tools. A lot of the training, a lot of the certification is pretty much the same, right? Which I found really fascinating, actually. That is fast. And speaking of grief, too, we touched on this in the workshop, the four-hour death and grief and yoga workshop that, um, for anyone listening, uh, and there's this whole concept that literally blew my mind. It actually, I ended up taking the whole rest of the day off napping because I was, like, integrating it and processing everything and mostly this topic. So it's this idea of, I'm going to laugh, so it's big death and little death, which is similar to um, like big T and little t for trauma. So it's big D and little d. So I'll let you get uh, into that. So go ahead and tell us about this idea of big D and little d death. I just want to be clear that I, I thought it was so funny when you were talking about that later and I like, heard you say it and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm not sure that psychologists would love me making up these terms. <laughs> And I'm sure it's not, I mean, I don't believe that any idea that we come up with is totally original, right? So um, it's kind of exactly like the trauma idea, right? I, I like to think that the grief and the loss that we go through in our lives and that sort of like everyday capacity, and I don't mean everyday in the actual everyday, I mean things that aren't necessarily death, right? We experience small deaths um, in the end of a relationship, in the changing of a job, in the big changes and transitions that we go through in our life, it's really like, it's a death. It's a death of the way that our life once was. And understanding how to cope and how to create tools and how to work through these kinds of little deep deaths, I think inform the way that we are able to accept and move toward and move toward peace around the big D death. You know, we so often pretend that those things don't matter, right? And I think that's true, even if it was your choice, right? Very recently, I'm working with a client for the last 20 months, and it was a nonprofit I was incredibly proud of, and it completely unraveled in, in the course of like a week. And there was absolutely, and I resigned, right? It was my choice. I left. I resigned. It was an absolutely significant loss in my life and I grieved it and at first I even even I like preached this for a living right like even though I was like oh why am I feeling like this like well Lisette because you just experience an extraordinary loss and when we don't give ourselves the space to grieve those little d deaths right we may never actually allow ourselves to create space to approach a big d death I think we can even see these kinds of, you can extrapolate that across the board, right? Like there is, there's a little D death as the seasons change, right? In my, in my yoga teaching, in my mindfulness instruction, I really like to think about the seasons of the world, right? Sort of moving through this and like 
as the seasons change, right now we're coming into autumn. There's a loss in the daylight. There's, you know, darkness coming upon us, right? That's a loss. That's And so we might experience these sort of feelings of grief and emotion around that. And if we don't give ourselves space to acknowledge those transitions, we may never be able to acknowledge the biggest transition of all. Right. It's training for us. Those little D deaths are training for the sort of like big D <laughs> that we all will come to. Right. And I think just from what I got out of the workshop, the integration and the post conversations I had with some of the people that I was there with, I think just the acknowledgement of, oh my God, this was a huge deal in, you know, in quotation, this was a huge death in quotation marks, a big transition, um, I'm grieving the loss of this relationship or this idea I had about myself or this um, life I had in this city, just the permission that's given to feel sad and feel, you know, the process of grief. And I think that for me, that was the biggest thing, just the permission. Because when someone dies, even with everything we're talking about, about the hush-hush, nature of how we go about acknowledging death um even when someone dies when you know people say oh my god even if it's super awkward oh my god I'm so sorry are you okay and there's this permission slip like okay do you need the day off of work or you know but when someone has a divorce or like my thing was when I was 18 I lived in Belgium for a year as an exchange student and then I came home And my entire life there was ripped away from me and everyone was like, oh, you're back. Yay. And I'm like, my heart is fucking broken right now. And I was never given that permission slip to feel devastated about that. So I think that is the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. I I had a, a really significant injury story and... I almost lost my leg in 2020. I almost had my leg amputated. It was like a whole thing. And it was like the seven year just medical disaster, right? And <laughs> it wasn't ever acknowledged really in the people in my, by the people in my life as something that I was consistently grieving, as something I was consistently facing a loss around. And similar to your Belgium experience, like your heart's breaking. And again, like no one's like, do you want a day off work? right? Do you, do you need me to just bring over a casserole because you can't get off the floor, right? But how often do we have these experiences in our life when we literally are like crying on the floor for three days and we're doing it alone and we're doing it alone. And so grief coaching is also about the acknowledgement of those little D-decks and in giving space and validating, I think, and I don't mean that in like patronizing, like validating the fact that we face these little D-dents all the time and that they're hugely impactful um, in the way that we can live our life, right? Yeah. And I think too, what you're saying about your leg, and I'm so sorry about that too. I saw that on Instagram and I was like, holy shit, that's a huge, um, such a huge thing to lose you know grieving loss of mobility or loss of physical freedom and I think in situations like that or coming back from Belgium and what people said to me wasn't like oh my god I'm so sorry you had to leave all that behind they're like aren't you happy to be home aren't you happy to be back and like 
maybe for your leg, you said you almost got it amputated. Thankfully, it wasn't, right? And so for people who maybe were like, oh my god, aren't you happy that you got to keep your leg? And you're like, yeah, I'm also freaking shattered. And, you know, so it's like, I think people are just trying to be helpful, like from a sweet place of trying to be positive and cheer people up. But then there's this lack of permission and lack of recognition and that just leads to us shoving that shit down 100 percent. and i think an important point to make here when we're talking about little d or big d death um that's just integral to all of this you can hold two truths simultaneously <laughs> my husband makes fun of me because i say this league every five seconds but like you can hold two truths simultaneously you can simultaneously be super pumped that you're back with your family and your friends from Belgium and absolutely shattered that you lost that life, right? You can absolutely be super excited that like, thank goodness I didn't lose my leg, but like, wow, that sucked for seven years. You know what I mean? And you can, in the same way, with big D death, right? I'm grateful that this person is no longer suffering. I'm grateful to have my life back. I'm grateful to be able to leave the house again, right? I'm also absolutely devastated and in wording around this loss. And so, so much of this work and so much of creating like a wholehearted approach to grief, death, and dying is understanding that it's not like a one-size-fits-all conversation or solution, right? And that's just really important, I think, to remember in these conversations. I think that's, yeah, that's really great. We're going to switch gears here, like just record scratch, because um, I wish I could come up with a better segue. But I do really want to talk about your book really fast, which is not they're not entirely about death. There's some some talk about transitions and transitional periods, but it's definitely not a book about death. So why don't you tell us about your book? So the book is called The Yoga Almanac. Remember, 52 practices and rituals to stay grounded through the astrological seasons. <laughs> I can't believe thank you. That's very nice to support. I co-authored this with a dear friend, Andrea Rice, and it is a sort of compendium on uh, different yoga philosophy, ritual, asana, and a short little poem. It sort of weekly takes you through the seasons and aligns with the astrological calendar. And again, that kind of goes back to something I touched on before. I think we experience these transitions in life, we experience seasons of life over and over and over and over again. And one of the things that one of the things that truly connects us all is this evolution that we continue to go through annually. So the book sort of offers a structure for that and it's kind of the crash course in really basic yoga philosophy. I just want to make that clear. It's very basic and sort of an asana and some chakra theory in there so thanks for that but <laughs> I just want to say too I was kind of reading through around the time like Libra Scorpio season transition and I thought it was really interesting because I think normally around this time we're going back to school where things are like picking up right we have the holidays woo and you know back in the saddle and it's interesting because in your book it talks about how at the same time the world, the earth, is kind of like going in the other direction of us on the calendar. Like this hype season here we have on our calendar when in reality the earth is quieting down. It's getting colder. Like you said, the days are getting shorter. So 
it's interesting how our bodies are attuned to the earth, but when we have, you know, this human calendar, and it's so nice to have it written out like, oh, this is why I feel fucking exhausted, you know, at this time of year. My body's maybe craving rest. Well, I think it's interesting too, because, you know, as like woo-woo as astrology can be, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not technically an astrologer um, as well, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in the Zodiac calendar and like right now we're coming into, we're in Scorpio season of the Scorpion, Scorpio is represented by, of course, the Scorpion and the totem significance of the Scorpion animal is the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. Here we are as we are coming into this, it's like a gray rainy day here in the Hudson Valley, the leaves are starting to come off the trees. We are entering the cycle of death and we just have to trust that one day spring is going to come and we're going to enter this cycle of rebirth right but we i think that the, the 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 energies that we feel the sort of underlying natural rhythms of the world inform the way that our bodies react just like you said we're attuned to these natural rhythms even when our sort of lives pick up as we come into the holidays too i think it's important to note the holidays suck for a lot of people so if you know someone, listeners, who had lost someone recently or has experienced uh, what we call a little D-death and it might have been a huge thing in their lives, chicken, right? The holidays are really, really scary, lonely, um, devastating, sad times for people who are grieving because there is this sort of natural, you know, energy to sort of push and, and make it bigger. So, yeah, the holidays can be really hard. <laughs> worth noting here that's a good thing to keep in mind as we move towards that time of year and okay so we're going to do the lightning round questions and normally i use these as a new portal to like have a new conversation but because we're towards the end of our time we're actually going to honor the name of the segment which is lightning questions so you can say whatever you want to say for your answer i'm just going to say great Okay, and then next question is, yeah, take as long as you want. So uh, question number one is, what is one message that you would tell your 13-year-old self? It's never going to be the way you think it's going to be, Queen. Keep going. Like, your life can take a thousand different twists and turns and uh, let those twists and turns happen. Don't be rigid in what you think you, what you, think you wanted. Mm, okay. Number two is what is the single biggest thing we can do as individuals to heal the world collectively, in your opinion? Right. I think coming from this yoga mindfulness background, uh, my gut instinct is to say, heal yourself. But I think that's bullshit. I mean, it's not like you should heal yourself. (laughs) Um, But I think listen, Uh, slow down and listen, ask people questions and like, don't wait for your turn to speak. Listen to what they are saying. I think the world really needs a lot more people willing to shut up and, and take a seat. Amen. Uh, final question. What is your favorite or most powerful affirmation, mantra, thing you tell yourself that you use or have been using? Keep going. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing I'd say to my 13-year-old self, but this year has been really hard, right? And I think, or like the last two years have been really hard and uh, keep going and there's still hope. 
keep going. There's still hope. World sucks. There's still hope. Beautiful. And then finally, the most important question is where can people find you and your offerings? Aw, thanks. Um, well, I live at, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my phone number is. Um, you can find my uh, grief and death work at my website, Better in the Morning. That's morning with a U. So B-E-T-T-E-R-I-N-T-H-E-M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, betterinthemorning.com. Uh, my Instagram is at Lisette Eileen, L-I-S-E-T-T-E-I-L-E-E-N. And my writing portfolio is LisetteEileen.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm really praying to the Zoom gods right now that the conversation got saved. So uh, thank you so much for being here. This conversation is something that no one wants to talk about, but everyone does at the same time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity and for holding space for this important conversation. You're amazing. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Your Own Medicine podcast. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And if you did, feel free to rate and review the podcast or feel free to share it on whatever social media platform you are on. I'm normally on Instagram or Facebook. And feel free to also send me a DM just letting me know what you thought of the episode, if you liked it, didn't like it, with any feedback you have to offer. And I will see you next week with a new episode of Your Own Medicine. Every Tuesday, a new one will be out. So until then, keep on healing and be your own medicine.